from the studios of Fractal Recording, this is The Mystic Show, episode 122. Welcome to The Mystic Show. I'm happy that you're here. I'm Chris Curran. I'm your host. And this is the show where we talk about spirituality and mindfulness and meditation and all kinds of other wonderful topics. Most of them are unseen and otherworldly. And the purpose of this show is for you and I and everyone to, well be inspired, and uh, hopefully grow spiritually. Of course, that's going to take some effort on your part, because nothing comes for free. Um, And you can check out our website, themysticshow.net, and we've had a lot of other uh, episodes, and we've interviewed a lot of really uh, valuable guests, and we release a new episode every Friday morning. And you can hear us as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can also just want to mention this. I send out these weekly behind-the-scenes emails of just little tidbits of behind-the-scenes of this show. And if you sign up for that, I am going to send you or you can download this really cool recording that I made. It's called Relax with Rumi. It's Rumi quotes. I've selected some Rumi quotes and I read them over this relaxing music. And it's about 49 minutes long. There's three different tracks. It's really, really cool. People are loving it. People are downloading it and telling me that it's great. Um, It's just something I made and I wanted to share with everyone because it's it's important. Um, So, and I'd like to quickly thank Pause Your Life they're our sponsor and our sister organization. Pause your life. If you need to hit the pause button on your life and stop the craziness for a, a short while, um, pauseyourlife.org. Uh, off, they offer retreats and meetups and, uh, and soon to be publishing a republishing, I should say, um, a James Allen book, one of my favorites, By Ways of Blessedness. In fact, I just approved the cover the cover design for that. So, so I'm excited today. Today is a wonderful day on the mystic show. I have to say, because, you know, as you know, or you might not know, I read from different books and then I talk about what I read. And sometimes I tell you a little bit about my journey and my, you know, helping people learn how to meditate and helping people overcome all the obstacles in their mind, all these Um, unrealistic expectations and all these things and how important spirituality is, right? I go on and on and on. But you know, I also interview guests. And today we have a great guest. And the reason the word great applies today is because this man has been practicing meditation and studying yoga philosophy and mysticism since 1972 And if you look up my bio, you'll see that that's the year I was born. Um, So we don't always get to talk to someone who literally has been practicing meditation for many, many years, studying with some of the great spiritual beings of this world. Um, He focuses on the teachings of Paramahamsa Ramakrishna. Uh, By the way, our guest's name is... I don't want to go too long without saying his name, Tony Murdoch. He teaches meditation. He offers retreats and workshops and training. He lives near Toronto, Canada in a town called Mississauga. And uh, his website, which will be on the show post, is towardsstillness.com. Tony, thank you so much for joining me on The Mystic Show. Well, thank you for inviting me, Chris. 
I'm excited that you're here. Uh, w- of course, we had a little pre-interview chat, and one of the things I wanted to start with was, because uh, we're going to get into a lot of uh, your whole story and your journey and everything, but I wanted to start with, in your mind and in your experience, how important is it for a person to be on their own spiritual journey and and, and sort of take it seriously? I mean, how, what are your feelings on that? Well, I come across this all the time in my own personal practice because, you know, as you say, you know, I've been on the journey for a long time, but I help people get started on their journey, and I've been doing this for quite a few years now, and a lot of people come because they feel stressed, um, things aren't going very well in their life, sometimes it's health issues, sometimes it's uh, emotional, sometimes it's just frustration with life. And what I try to demonstrate to them, not only with my own life, but help them to demonstrate in their own life that once they can bring some harmony into their life, you know, calm the mental stresses and open up their emotional heart, their spiritual heart, and bring more harmony into physical, mental, and emotional spheres, then they can connect to something that's deeper, their spiritual side. And once they get that connection, and sometimes it doesn't take very long, you know, I'm always in amazement how some people can have these experiences of peace and calmness really quickly, that they have their own experience. It's not just something they read about in a book. It's not just a testimonial they've heard from someone else. They have their own experience, and that's something that can never be taken away from them. And I know many of the teachers you've studied with are, you know, talking about the goal of spirituality being, you know, oneness with the ultimate and, you know, yes. merging with the divine. So so feeling good and being stress-free is, is also important, but the ultimate goal is, um, but not everyone starts out knowing or seeking that ultimate goal, right, Tony? That's true. Uh, a lot of them come just because they're trying to reduce their stress. And some people say, well, I want to make my mind blank. And I, I, I smile, I bite my tongue a little bit, <laughs> yeah. and I say, well, that's not really what we're trying to do here, is we make ourselves more aware, more conscious. And, and yes, the ultimate goal of meditation, and according to the great teachers out there, the ultimate goal of life, is to connect with the spiritual. And the spiritual can mean different things to different people, but it's a connection to what I call that uh, universal reservoir of energy, the infinite reservoir of energy that's all around us, and everyone has a different name for it. So go for it. Right. Oh, I like that. So let's get into your story, Tony. Um, okay. Tell, you know, and I want to hear how you sort of got into spirituality, because I think it wasn't, a direct route, and I think you sort of felt that you were uh, guided somehow. Yes, uh, looking back, you can always, you know, twenty twenty vision. You you look back over your life, and you can see. Well, I thought I was in charge, but you realize <laughs> that there that the, someone else seems to be in charge. But uh, I guess my earlier beginnings was, uh, you know, being more of an introvert. I spent a lot of time in my teenage years. You know, I had friends I went out and about, but I would spend time in my parents' basement making candles. And uh, I discovered various books of a spiritual nature that I would read down there while the, the, the candle wax was setting. Tibetan Book of the Dead and uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, um, books along this line. Um, I read a book by Swami Kriyananda called The Path. And this got me interested in various things spiritual. And one summer, you know, I, I guess one of my side readings had been Lord of the Rings, so I had the wanderlust in me, the wanderlust. Nice. And uh, traveled out west, and you know, I grew up in Barrie, so we were several years behind the hippie movement, and I was kind of a hippie wannabe. And, uh, grabbed my backpack, went out west. I think I had a first time I went out west. I had a copy of Lord of the Rings uh, in my knapsack backpack, and uh, ended up on the west coast of Vancouver Island in Wreck Bay, where there was a virtual city of people 
a third of the people from Toronto, a third from Vancouver, a third from uh, California, and people were just living on the beach. And, and while I was there, there was a baby born on the beach and, you know, wow. a virtual community. And there was a storm one day and we had to go up high and someone took me into their lean-to and loaned me a copy of Be Here Now by Ramdas and devoured that while I was waiting for the storm to abate. Mm -hmm. And what I remembered from that is that you know, he had been down to Laguna Beach. The following year, my wandering spirit got a hold of me again and ended up in California. And I was going to go to Swami Kriyananda's Ananda retreat because I had read his book, The Path, and I'd been in correspondence with them. And I wanted to find out about their commune, their community, alternate living, and their school. You know, they're teaching young kids values of spiritual life. But uh, what happened was I was hitchhiking and I got in a car that said they were going down to the LA area, Anaheim actually. I was thinking, oh, Disneyland. <laughs> so. Uh, I decided, well, Kriyananda can wait and let me go and explore Southern California and ended up in Laguna Beach where I had remembered this is where Ramdas had been. He had mentioned it in his introduction. And while I was actually living on the beach, um, you know, sleeping under trees, it was a little bit illegal, but I did it anyway. Mm. And uh, I was reading the autobiography of a yogi, and it turned out that Encinitas was just south of me. So I went down to Encinitas, hitched a ride down to Encinitas. And if you're familiar, any of your listeners are familiar with the autobiography, he wanders around, meets all these saints who recognize him as, as someone who is very spiritual. So I had these illusions of grandeur that once I walked onto the Hermitage site there, I'd be recognized as a spiritual giant that was just waiting to be uh, unfolded. <laughs> and of course, that didn't happen. I, I, I had long hair, beard, probably hadn't bathed in a week, and big backpack, very little money. And um, there were two of the nuns in the bookstore, and you know they didn't greet me ceremoniously. But there was something about uh, the, the place that uh, encouraged me to give up most of the rest of my money to spend a couple of days there, which was the minimum. So I went in and stayed and I met some of the brahmacharyas, the uh, novice monks, and some of the, uh, the uh, brothers that were there. Now, where you stayed, was what is that place called? It's, it is the Encinitas Ashram for Self-Realization Fellowship. Okay. And, and I, while I, I, real quick, yeah. I, mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask you real quick, um, during the, your journey so far, were you like troubled or were you just kind of wandering or were you looking for answers or salute? Like what was your emotional state at the time? Well, I was looking for something, but I didn't know what I was looking for. You know, there was a restlessness. You know, maybe part of that was the, the wander lust that I had in traveling around. But I came from the post-hippie movement, which meant that I was experimenting with LSD and mescaline, and I had alternate consciousness experiences. And some of these opened the doors to knowing there were alternate perceptions. And then some of the readings that I was doing, you know, especially Yogananda and some of the others that I had been introduced to were saying, well, drugs can get you there temporarily, but meditation and a spiritual path can get you there permanently. So I didn't know how to find that path, the one that was right for me. And of course, some of the experiences I had, I wanted to make more permanent. And um, so this is what landed me in uh, Encinitas. And while I was there, someone befriended me and told me there was a kirtan, a devotional singing gathering, coming up at another local city So on the Friday. So I went there the following Friday. And um, this is the, I was back, went back to Laguna Beach first, and it was in the corner of the center of the universe. Uh, anyone who knows Laguna Beach, there's Pacific Coast Highway and Laguna Canyon Road. And back in 1972, long hair, everyone picked up everyone. 
and I wasn't getting a ride. I was there for 15 minutes not getting a ride. And for the first time uh, that I can recall, I closed my eyes and I prayed and I, I said, I need a ride. I need to get to this place. I need to meet these people. And I opened my eyes, the next car stopped and picked me up and actually drove me right to where I needed to go. Mm. And, uh, and that was kind of you know, something out of the pages of Autobiography for Yogi. And while I was there, I met my, my guru, uh, the person who ended up becoming my guru. His name is Ramakrishna Ananda. Back in those days, he had the name Kalidas, and it was changed later on. But uh, I had been introduced to the group of people who uh, were leading a spiritual life, and they welcomed me in. I joined the yoga center, actually the first yoga center in Orange County, back uh, 44 years ago, 45 years ago now. And the, the rest is history, you might say. But I was there for four months, and I had to return to Canada. The Vietnam War had just ended. The draft was still on. And back in those days, being um, not quite an illegal entry into the States, if I had been there longer than six months, my understanding was, uh, and I was caught doing something wrong, I could have been put in jail, I could have been drafted uh, or deported, uh, which would have been a free trip home, but then I would have not been allowed to come back for a number of years. So I voluntarily went home. And that's where I entered uh, the Self-Realization Fellowship um, classes. Uh, I took the lessons for a year and got absorbed in those lessons and attended the classes in the Toronto area. And the following year I went back and ended up um, uh, linking up with the Yoga Center again. Had gone to Mother Center, uh, which is the headquarters for Self-Realization Fellowship in LA and absorbed in the energies of Yogananda. And just to, to end this part of my story, because it's an important turning point, I was, I call it my LA freeway conversion experience, <laughs> where I was driving back from LA, going back down to Costa Mesa, where the yoga center is, where my, my teacher teaches. And I was filled with the life and energies of Yogananda, and my eyes open, of course, driving by myself, and all of a sudden, Yogananda left me and Ramakrishna came in. And I'd already been introduced to Ramakrishna through the yoga center. And I just felt myself filled with the teachings of Ramakrishna. I had this real sense that Yogananda was saying, um, you're not for me or I'm not for you. Ramakrishna is your chosen ideal. Um, follow the, the teachings of Ramakrishna, or um, of Ramakrishna, yes. And, and, and I have. And what in the car that day was it? Was it really a stark realization like that? Was it something you were just absolutely sure of? Yes, it wasn't just a, a thought process. It shocked me. You know, I was driving the car, and it says, "How can this be happening? What is this?" My eyes were open. I can see the traffic, but there was an inner consciousness that was moving through me and very strongly indicating to me that I'm meant to be on the Ramakrishna path. In fact, several years, um, several times since then, Yogananda, I've gone to several Yogananda events, and I feel, you know, Yogananda welcomes me, the energy welcomes me, but I still, still feel very strongly that Yogananda is looking down over me and guiding me on the Ramakrishna path, which is really interesting. Right. So let's get into Ramakrishna a bit. Just give us a quick background on on him. I, I mean, I've yes. heard some things, but you obviously studying it and, and living it would know more. Tell us a little bit about Ramakrishna. Okay. Uh, well, he is a, a saint, a mystic. And in India, they call him an avatar or incarnation that lived the end of the 1800s. Uh, in fact, he died 1886. And he is very unique in the, the history of various uh, mystics and spiritual uh, personages where he practiced several different traditions and had many different experiences in those traditions. He's very respected from the standpoint that he helped to harmonize the approach. Back in the Vedas, there's a, a, a saying you know, in the ancient scriptures in India is that truth is one, 
and sages call it by many names. And on a play of those words, he says, there are many phase, as many phase as there are, there are paths. So everyone needs to follow their own path. They don't need to follow Ramakrishnaism. But if everyone follows their own path with sincerity and with intensity and longing, they can attain the goal of that path. But he also brought back with uh, a vengeance, you might say, or a force, a sweet force, the approach of worshiping God as the Divine Feminine or as a Divine Mother and really helped to bring that. It's almost as if in the consciousness of the world a little pebble had dropped in the consciousness of the world and Ramakrishna was there and from that time forward there's been a, more of a universality and acceptance of various spiritual paths and a growth in the belief in the Divine as the Divine Feminine, the Divine Mother, and this has uh, spread throughout the world. Um, you know, it's still growing, but a lot of people have been drawn to that, even not knowing Ramakrishna. is almost as if Ramakrishna, he is a name, he was a person, but he has influenced the consciousness that people are tapping into, helping them on their own journey, helping them to be not just tolerant, but more accepting of other traditions. Right. And I believe one of his most known disciples was uh, Swami Vivekananda. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And he was one of the original Swamis to come to North America to help to, to bring the teachings of India to North America, to bring yoga, although he didn't teach postures. You know, we understand yoga here in North America, most people as a process of doing asanas or postures, hatha yoga. But he brought in the yoga of meditation, the yoga of discrimination, the yoga of devotion, uh, the, the other types of yoga that are very prevalent in India and brought them here to North America. In fact, he was invited to a conference in Chicago, 1893, where a number of different Christian denominations. There might have been a Jewish rabbi there. There might have been someone representing the Muslim tradition and the lone Hindu, Swami Vivekananda. And that conference of world religions might have just been a footnote in history had it not been for Swami Vivekananda being there. He just blew them away. Uh, his speeches are available um, in script, of course. You can read them um, in various sources on the internet. And he just impressed everyone with his spirituality. And from that point forward, he started teaching in various locations around uh, North America and really planted the seed of meditation uh, in, in the U.S. and also in Canada. And, and I just saw this movie, Awake. Yes. Uh, about Yogananda, and it, it yes. really is a wonderful film about how Yogananda came to the States. And yeah, and, and Vivekananda had come 20 years before, but it was, he, Vivekananda didn't stay as long, and he, I don't think he traveled as much, and like, I, I don't think he was trying to build up a following in the United States, where when Yogananda came, I think it was in the, the teens or the early 20s, the 19... 1920, I believe. Yeah. He was, he actually was wanted to stay here and, and build up a presence, Correct. Yes, uh, Swami Vivekananda was here for a while and then he brought some of his brother disciples over and they started various centers in some of the major cities and a lot of those centers, Vedanta centers, are still in operation and uh, there's still a lot of gathering, a lot of support uh, around those centers. So they brought one type of yoga and uh, Hindu spirituality to North America. When Yogananda came, he brought a very similar message, but you might say he was a little bit more proactive in making it more palatable for the religion of India, more palatable for North Americans. And he really bridged the essence of the teachings of the Bible with the essence of the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, uh, for example. And filtered the teachings into an English that that people understood. 
And but he spent a lot more years here than Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda, I would say, planted that first seed that made it more acceptable for Yogananda to come, and and his organization has has grown. And it's a wonderful movie, uh, Awake, and I'd recommend. Uh, any of your listeners to see it if they can. Apparently it will be available in uh, DVD format by the end of the year according to their website. Mm. Yeah, that was it was a very good uh, film. So let me ask you, tell me about the effect that Ramakrishna has had on you. Meaning, tell me about the teaching a little bit, about the actual practice. Like how does Ramakrishna, you know, teach you to meditate and, and what effect has that had on you personally? Well, that's a really good question, and something I've been trying to come to grips with. You might think it is fairly straightforward, but it's very subtly growing in me over the last few years, and, and I would say even in the last few months. And what Ramakrishna brought was an intensity to the spiritual path. If you read the Gospel of Ramakrishna, which is a recording of his words, you know, someone had written them down. A lot of what he teaches is longing desperately for that connection with the divine. Uh, someone had once been asked a question, how long does it take to get enlightened? And he said, it's not so much how long, it's how intense is your longing. So Ramakrishna brought that emphasis on intensity. So you really need to long. This is the difference between what Ramakrishna had been teaching as a form of meditation compared to the way mindfulness-based meditation is often taught where you're just sitting and quietly in your cocoon of stillness observing things. That's a viable path as well, but it's different. And what Ramakrishna is saying, you can speed up your process with that inner prayer. So he really emphasized prayer and longing. And this goes back to the teachings of Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. One of the verses, I can't remember which one offhand, says if you do something in a mild way, you'll get a mild response. If you do something in a more moderate, put more moderate effort in, you'll get a more moderate response. You put an ardent effort in, that's what you'll get back. It's it's like the principles for the law of attraction. You know what you put into it, you get back out of it. So if you're longing for things in the world, that's what you'll get back. You're longing th for things spiritually, that's what you'll get back. So the more intense your longing, the more benefit you will get from your meditations. So that's one side that I like in the, the teachings that have influenced me, that, that inner prayer, the inner longing, the crying out, especially to the mother uh, concept of the Divine Feminine. So, quick follow-up question on that. Do sure. you find that most Westerners have trouble grasping that concept? Yes. Yeah, it's something that I subtly sneak in to <laughs> my classes. Uh, very often people are just looking for basic stress reduction and a lot of people don't have a religious background, but they're spiritual and they, they don't have a, a belief in a, a chosen deity, so to speak. So the, that idea is a bit foreign to them, but I am subtly sneaking it in. And when I do my classes and some of my day retreats, I, 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 I emphasize that. And those people who are ready to hear about it will gravitate toward it and um, they come back to me and say it's benefited them mm -hmm. a lot. Nice. But another principle of Ramakrishna is a concept called Vijnana, V-I-J-N-A-N-A, -A, which is you might have a longing for that ultimate enlightenment or nirvana, whatever name you might put to that ultimate experience, God-realization, self-realization, and in a lot of the older traditions, the concept was once you're out of the field of karma and the world, that you're free. And, it, and what Ramakrishna brought to the table was this concept, Vigyana, is, okay, you've completed half your journey. And in the past, that was the full journey. I made it. Isn't that enough? Mm. And what he said, well, now you bring that back into the world through your body, 
through your life example and your relationship with other people and you help other people. So you bring that spirituality back into the world. Mm. Is that another concept that seems difficult for Westerners, like getting or, or transcending this world of material world and karma? You know? Yes. Um, yes and, and no. You know, one of my favorite responses when people ask me a question. <laughs> y- yes and no. So, yes, they're looking for some sense of freedom, and they're trying to be free of their stresses, and very often the goal might be, well, I want peace of mind, and that's a great goal to begin with. There are deeper goals uh, beyond that. In, in fact, one of the things that Ramakrishna brought also is that spiritual experience is never ending. There's never an ultimate goal. There's always more to experience. But a lot of people are a little more educated, you might say. They've done more reading. They've been more exposed to various spiritual teachings. So they understand the term karma. They understand more about cause and effect, that very often they're living the effects right now of previous causes, which is another principle for the law of attraction. And they realize that if they start putting new causes into effect right now, they'll have better effects later on in their life. And I apply all this to a person's spiritual life so that if they start planting those seeds now, they might not see the effects or the benefits straight away, but with continued practice. And one of my threefold mantras is practice, practice, (laughs) practice. Okay. And with that, eventually, you'll start to experience the results. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm often amazed at how quickly people will get those results. Right. So interesting. So let's, let's, I want to take a quick break. Again, our guest today is Tony Murdoch. Um, We'll be right back. I just want to give us all a chance to absorb a little bit of this. Welcome back to The Mystic Show. Um, Chris Curran. And our guest today is Tony Murdoch. He's been practicing meditation and studying, you know, yoga and mysticism for many years since 1972. He teaches meditation. And his website is towardstillness.com. And um, so, Tony, can you give us a little... um, little overview of your website and the types of uh, retreats and offerings that you have on your website? Yes. The, the website, towardstillness.com, has a, a lot, number of different articles uh, as well as a number of different meditations people can practice. Uh, some people have said I give away too much, but it's, <laughs> you know, I've written it. It's, it's there for people to, to read mm-hmm. uh, techniques that are generic, that can help people on their own practice. Uh, I teach a, a lot of different meditation classes and workshops in the Toronto, Mississauga area as being a part of um, various yoga teacher training programs and I have my own meditation teacher training program. People want to do what I do so rather than just picking up a book and reading a book and thinking well I can meditate, I can teach meditation now, I teach them some of the basics of how to teach meditation which is really a transfer of consciousness and the more attuned you are as a teacher, the more effective and more beneficial it will be for the people at the receiving end. So my programs are outlined there on the website as well as my three meditation CDs are available in connecting to iTunes. Very good. So I wanted to ask you, Tony, about your guru. Um, yes. Again. Oh, by the way, have you, have you traveled east over to India or those areas? I have, I have not. 
um, uh, a lot of my friends have, and you know they've had wonderful times. And my trips to India are my trips to Southern California to visit my teacher, because people go to India in search of uh, a teacher or a teaching or a spiritual connection, and. I find that with my teacher in California. So I have not been to India. Uh, I was supposed to go in, in graduate school to study Sanskrit, but that I had a scholarship, but that didn't uh, come through in the end. Mm. And uh, I would have been stuck in a room studying Sanskrit rather than going out there and perusing the temples. Right. So that's a perfect segue into your guru, which is what I yes. wanted to ask you about. So mm -hmm. beyond you know, meeting your guru, what, yeah. just tell us about uh, the difference it's made in your life and your practice having a guru. I've had many years to reflect on this and I'm still reflecting on it, how special that relationship is. You know, as a bumbling teenager, you know, 19, meeting him for the first time and being a part of a community that um, gathered around him. I was there when he was first named as being a guru and then a lot of people wanted to uh, be initiated by him including me. Uh, in fact when I first asked him I was just leaving the next day one of my trips back I had been down there and I was coming back to Canada I said I'd like to be initiated by you and my polite Canadian attitude came in saying sometime knowing that he couldn't do it right away because I was leaving the next day. And he said, okay, write me letters and, and uh, just show your um, sense of sincerity behind it. And eventually I was initiated by him. And I found out later that had I not said sometime, which showed a lack of commitment, he would have actually done something for me right then and there, uh, even though I was getting on the plane the next day. So. Since then, he's been a part of my life, giving me teachings, um, different practices to do. And there's just something very special about being in the presence of the Guru. And he, he sees through you, he can help you um, in areas of your path that you can't see yourself. So it gives you subtle guidance. Um, sometimes he says things that you don't want to hear but then that's what you have to overcome <laughs> is your ego's resistance to um, wanting to do something and he says no you can't do that or <laughs> having you do something that you you feel that you'd rather be doing something else so yeah, but he gives you that sense of anchoring in the spiritual and the more I, every year I go down I spend time with him and every time I'm there, I, I understand him even more and, and, and who can fully understand the guru and uh, what his consciousness is. And, and it's really difficult to understand the relationship between the guru and the disciple, or we call them chelas, because it's ever-growing. And uh, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time with him personally. You know, I'm up here in Canada, but I always feel that he's present and he's guiding me and uh, if I go inside sincerely with my meditations and prayers I, I get the guidance that I need. Now it doesn't replace the time that I can spend with him because I always enjoy being with him and there's wonderful transformations and that uh, my, my, my tank is filled up you might say and spending my 10 days with him every year uh, so I can come back and do what I do which is share his teachings and the teachings of Ramakrishna. Mm. That's great. I mean, I also, uh, the practice that I've been doing for the last 11 or 12 years, um, I had, I have a spiritual guide as well and mm -hmm. totally resonate with, with everything you're saying. I, you know, the ego is a funny thing and, and, you know, the person who says, oh, I don't need any help <laughs> is, yes. is, you know, that's kind of, I don't know. It, it shows a level of, um, spiritual growth or maybe even maturity to even say, you know what, I do need help. I mean, even people who want to learn how to play tennis, they get a coach. And people who want to learn how to swim, they get a an instructor. And it's like spirituality, yes. for some reason, is, you know, there's this ego thing that says, or maybe the people, they're, maybe they're just not ready, Tony? 
Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, th that's the, the thing. And, and uh, I guess something left over from the, the 70s where we moved away from the 60s into the 70s. And, and the 60s was like, you know, free love and, and everyone, you know, can connect with everyone else. The 70s was more of a me-ism, I-ism. And we still have that uh, where who needs the guru? Who needs the guide? You know, I can do this on my own. You know, my own path is my own. Uh, my teacher does have a book, if I'm allowed to say, it's called Keys to Higher Consciousness. And very enthusiastically, I, I brought some books back and I went to uh, a meeting and, and I shared the book. Hope, I think everyone's going to want to buy this book. It, you know, I'll, I'll sell out. Mm -hmm. No one wanted to buy the book because it was all about meism and I'm on my own journey and I can do this on my own. One person of politeness bought one, one single copy. Mm. But uh, that seems very prevalent now. That's, it's changing more. There, there seems to be more openness now to the teachers. But you have to be careful about selecting the teacher. You have to really analyze who the teacher is and uh, not just accept things on, on the surface. Uh, look at the, the teacher's character. How is he or she leading their lives? And are they really following the principles of spirituality as I understand? And it's not that we surrender ourselves to them and their edicts. It's more they're guiding us in the unfoldment that we need to go through as an individual. So there is a bit of a surrendering of our will to them, but there is more of a sense uh, we're sur surrendering our will to the divine and the guru is there as a guide so that we can unfold. So even though I said earlier the guru may say, you know, do this or do that and our ego, you know, shudders a little bit not wanting to do something or thinking it's too hard. It's not about doing anything that is unethical or immoral. It is all about what's best for us unfolding on the spiritual path. So there are a lot of gurus out there, a lot of good teachings out there, but there are a lot of teachers out there uh, perhaps need a little, as a devotee, you need to discriminate and make sure you're making the right choice and following their teachings. Yeah, and yeah, because I know from, I've been told in India there's a million gurus and, and a lot of them, you know, just take your money and make you do their laundry and all yeah. this kind of stuff. So, but yes, that's, that's everywhere. Um, this is a perfect segue into, uh, the Bhagavad Gita because you also can translate, obviously read and translate Sanskrit. And yes. that's what the Gita was written in. And the Bhagavad Gita, you know, I've talked about on the show before, but describe to our listeners how the Gita describes this battle of this ego thing. <laughs> well, a high tech question, right? <laughs> a high tech question. You know, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> oh, geez, right. Uh, what What I like about the Gita, very basically, and and when I'm doing yoga teacher training programs, uh, and and they're in the programs, the students are in the programs to learn to be posture teachers, but we force them to learn a little bit about the spiritual side of yoga, which includes the Bhagavad Gita. And the important lesson that I like to put across to people who are just being introduced to the Gita is the, the struggle that one of the main characters in the, the Gita has, which is Arjuna, the, the, the advanced devotee, you might say. And of course, Krishna is the representative of the divine, and, or is the divine, or is the incarnation. And Arjuna's despondency, his doubt, not wanting to do the battle, uh, which can be understood at many different levels, but on a spiritual level, not wanting to let go of his habit friends, not wanting to uh, be mercenary and, and, and kill off uh, his, his old attitudes uh, that he's very familiar with and comfortable with, doubting that he can actually be on the spiritual path and uh, accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And this is where the guru comes in in the form of Krishna, and in, I can't remember the number of verses offhand, several, 760 odd verses, uh, explains why it's not only possible, but why it's so important to be on the spiritual path. And the Gita really does 
summarize all the spiritual teachings that were prevalent in India at the time and really emphasizing the importance of uh, acquiring knowledge of the Jnana Yoga approach, um, Raja Yoga, which is the meditation, the willpower, Bhakti Yoga, the yoga of devotion, and Karma Yoga, the yoga of action. So uh, those four yogas are really being developed uh, within the Bhagavad Gita and compared one with the other with this spirit of renunciation. And this is all so important for any of us on the spiritual path. So in reading the Gita and reading the various passages, and it's not one of those books where you can read from cover to cover and say, okay, I've, I've read that one and put it aside. It's something that you would read over and over and over again and getting inspired by the various passages. And as you learn and as you develop, you get more and more out of the passages. And it's really a guideline for anyone's spiritual development. And it's so rich with the various passages and interpretations of the different types of yoga that can help us at various points when we're feeling our own despondency, when we're feeling our doubt, when we're feeling we're stuck and there's an obstacle before us. The Gita has something for you. Right. I The Gita is just wonderful on so many levels. Yes. Um, we're kind of getting close to the end here. I, I wanted to ask, is it, I think this uh, might be our last question, but this is a very important one. Is this whole spiritual process... Is it really simpler than we think it is, or, or I mean, is it really that simple? I mean, we know it's not easy, um, it, but we get confused a lot. Is is, is it simpler yes. than that? I think at the same time, it, it, it's it's simple and difficult. It, we always have that choice to make to embark, but the world is filled with things that entice us away, uh, different habits and desires that can entice us away. Where you know, I've been practicing for 42, 43 years now. Uh, there have been times when my practice has been weak and there's a little part in the middle where it was non-existent. I kind of let it uh, die away for a little while. But then I had a huge reawakening experience which put me temporarily right back or even beyond what I had experienced before. And then I had my work began in working through you know, uh, my different habits and behaviors that I had developed while I was away from the practice. So it's an easy choice to make, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's difficult. In, in um, the Yoga Sutras Patanjali, there is a portion of teaching in there where if you have obstacles or afflictions in your life, there are three things you need to do. And one is called tapas, which is effort. And as one person translates, you struggle, you struggle, you struggle. Hmm. The next is svadhyaya, which is introspection, self-analysis. You have to fix what's wrong. You got to get in there and fix the old patterns and really get to know yourself. And the third part is ishvara pranidhana, which is surrender or devotion to the divine. So uh, this one person said, struggle, struggle, struggle surrender, surrender, surrender. So the hard part of the spiritual path is the struggling, and the easy part, you think it might be easy, <laughs> and in a way it is, you surrender. <laughs> but at the same time, you've got to get to know yourself. The same person who says, I want to experience peace, wonders why they can't experience peace after a few weeks or a few months of meditation. Then they have to go inside. This is the Svidhyaya uh, part, the introspection, self-analysis, you've got to get in there and perhaps fix what's wrong. What's the cause of the stress to begin with? Maybe I need to change some behaviors, change some attitudes. And according to Patanjali, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, this is a way to eliminate affliction which caused by our ego, caused by ignorance or our lack of understanding of what life is all about. Uh, afflictions caused by grasping for things in the world and uh, being repulsed by things in the world. We need to develop more of a sense of equilibrium and a big one just clinging to life or our fear of dying. So we need to get rid of all these afflictions and fears to move forward on the spiritual path. So your, your question is, is it 
easy or is it hard? <laughs> it all depends what our journey is. And uh, there is one thing I'd like to end on, which comes back to the teachings of Ramakrishna, because he says you, you have to have that sincere prayer, that sincere desire, the, the longing, and that's the struggle part. But there's that infinite reservoir of energy which has a personal component to it, if we wish, and this is part of what Ramakrishna taught. Uh, the divine can be formless, but it could also have form. Uh, we can, you know, um, focus on the infinite through an image or a person. And there's something called divine grace. So this is where the surrender part comes in. We struggle and if we just pray and open ourselves up, that infinite reservoir of energy through compassion, infinite compassion, uh, if we open up enough, uh, that divine grace will shower down over us and help us on the path. So at the same, on the same side we struggle and make the effort, and then the flip side is um, our, our success is really up to the divine, not up to the ego. In fact, there's one point where God laughs at us where our ego says, I want to get enlightened. Ha 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 ha. And uh, the thing is, it's not the ego that gets enlightened. What the ego doesn't realize, the ego has to step aside and let enlightenment happen. And, and then in Ramakrishna's teachings, the ego becomes divinized and becomes a representative of the infinite energy and comes back into the world and teaches others. Wow. Tony, thank you so much for coming on The Mystic Show. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. Tony Murdoch, he's uh, practicing meditation and studying philosophy and mysticism for many years. Um, Tony, well, I'll have links to your website on the show post, towardstillness.com. And, um, yeah, people can learn about your how you teach meditation. You offer retreats and workshops and trainings. Um, yes. And, and everything. So, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. And because I actually have so many more questions for you, <laughs> we may have okay. to have you back on the show. <laughs> oh, wonderful. It'll be my pleasure. Yeah. So, thanks, Tony. Oh, you're very welcome, Chris. All right. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, this has been amazing. I, I really, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this interview myself. I was trying to take notes and conduct the interview. It's not easy. So, I hope you got some, some insight from this I think his his journey was inspiring um, how he was led and everything so as you move through your day maybe reflect on some of these points and maybe you want to write something in your diary maybe you want to just meditate and tap into that infinite reservoir he was talking about so until next time check out our website themysticshow.net for a lot of previous episodes And of course, as always, keep shining.